Okay. Well, hey, welcome to You Talking with Greg. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here with a fellow professor, uh, Michael Kazanjian. Uh, just learning how to say his name, but I know Mike for a long, for quite some time. We're feel brothers in arms. He's an author, he's a professor, author of Unified Philosophy. I really look forward to getting into that. Uh, Mike, welcome uh, to You Talking with Greg. Thank you very much, Greg. I appreciate this opportunity uh, to uh, talk with you, and I'm uh, glad that we're on the same wavelength in many, many cases. Um, basically, my book started, my, uh, my, it was my third book, and it's now in its third edition, Unified Philosophy. I had very great difficulty with uh, the title, and especially the subtitle, mm. uh, Interdisciplinary Metaphysics, Ethics, and Liberal Arts. And what I'm suggesting is that eventually philosophy would be elevated from a department of philosophy to something much bigger, uh, possibly under a dean, possibly with an associate provost. Uh, Mary Midgley calls it the meta-discipline. Whitehead calls it uh, critique of abstractions, which means it's a discipline of disciplines. It's not simply one among other disciplines. When I, I actually started writing it in the, toward the end of high school. Mm -hmm. And what happened was uh, we were asking our teachers. Actually, actually, let me pause you just for a second, because I think you're making a really important point uh, that I would that I'd like to echo. And so the idea that there's a meta discipline and then, you know, if there is and certainly I would argue if there is philosophy is the meta discipline or the opportunity to sit back and think critically about our abstractions and their organization and the way to do that systematically is through philosophy. I just want to really echo that I, that I certainly have come to that conclusion through my own twisted way into psychology uh, and back from my approach towards a more unified theory of psychology and then found myself falling into metaphysics, ontology, epistemology. I hope we get into some of those concepts because I realized the way I was taught them was kind of confusing. I think you're really onto some uh, real interesting ideas about how to frame that. So I just wanted to insert that in there for the listeners just for them to think about Hey, kind of how does this connect to unified theory of knowledge? Well, that's a that's a big connection. Uh, and the idea that we need a systematic framework to organize the discipline. So I, I really appreciate your insights along those lines and I share them deeply. Yeah, one of, one of the good points in talking with you is that while uh, your background is psychology and mine is philosophy, uh, I feel very comfortable uh, in speaking with you because I'm convinced that you would be able to teach an introductory or advanced course in philosophy because of the way that you've spoken. I would be unable to discuss advanced psychology. I might be able to dabble in, in introductory psychology because it comes out of philosophy. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I find it very, very um, healthy to speak with you on philosophy because you seem to be on the same wavelength uh, with me. Um, in in high school, we were asking our teachers. You know, we went to um, selective admissions high school, and mm -hmm. on our agenda was um, you know the Ivy League, MIT, Caltech, University of Chicago, and we asked our teachers. Uh, how difficult is it to get into the big name schools? Right. And, and each time the teacher said something, whether the military academies, the service academies, 
whether MIT, whether Caltech or Berkeley or the Ivy League, they said College of Liberal Arts. Mm. Right there, I'm thinking, what are you talking about? Mm. Uh, if, if I want to be a physicist, I'm not going to study mathematics. Hey, fool, guess what? Um, if you don't know math, you know better not go into physics. Sure, well, I didn't know that at that time. So I disagreed through high school with the idea of liberal arts. As far as mm. I was concerned, liberal arts and general education were, quote, nonsense, unquote. Right. So when I got into college and uh, decided on the current goals that I had in mind kind of got swept away for various reasons. Mm -hmm. And people told me, you might go into philosophy because you like to ask questions which can't be answered. Ah. <laughs> and I thought, uh, yes, you're right. Okay, so what? Well, you should go into, you know, why are we in a chemistry lab? Why is there chemistry in lecture? Guess what? MIT has an answer to that. Mm. Uh, in one place you think, and in one case you do. Mm. So when I got into college, I'm skeptical, and I'm suddenly reading Alfred North Whitehead. Okay. Uh, I like the guy. He can speak in normal, common English. Mm -hmm. And I like reading him, and what do I find? Unfortunately, he's a general education man. He's a liberal arts guy. And he is talking about holistic thinking. Wow. And I'm thinking, Whitehead, I disagree with you. Mm. Well, keep reading, keep reading. <laughs> and I am keep reading and I'm thinking, you know what? I like the guy and I think that, okay, he is grudgingly convincing me that philosophy is not stupid, it's not useless, that liberal arts is okay. Well, what I do is then I start writing what turns out to be my unified philosophy. So I'm hmm. writing and writing and writing. This is as an, uh, as an undergrad or when you were an undergraduate or a graduate student? You were thinking uh, about these issues? Um, I started writing actually um, in, my, in my senior year in high school. Hmm. And, but what I was doing was I was attacking liberal arts Okay. But when I bumped into Whitehead, I started agreeing with him and I started being positive mm. as a freshman, as a sophomore in college. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I became kind of a Whitehead man. Mm. And I said, okay, I like this guy. Well, I disagree with him, but you know what? I'm beginning to disagree with him less and less. Gotcha. And, and so... He's talking about the unity of knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, I think if he were here today, he would love your book and mm. he would be able to talk with you. How do we unify knowledge? Um, if we were to find, I'm quoting him, I'm paraphrasing him. If we were to find a few basic principles underlying all of knowledge, it would be um, the best education possible. Well, it turns out that what he's talking about ultimately is metaphysics, mm. studied reality, which underlies all of the branches of metaphysics, and it uh, 
he explicitly says that it unifies the arts, the sciences, technology, everything. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, he and I are beginning to agree. I can now see where he's going with liberal arts. Mm -hmm. I, I was planning, he was planting the seeds for, um, for seeing metaphysics and liberal arts and philosophy as the same thing. Uh -huh. So um, in- uh, can, you, can you give me a little, uh, and maybe this will, it would lead up to it, but uh, you know, that word metaphysics is, is potentially a very complicated word. Uh, yes. Can you share your thoughts about that word uh, and what it means to you and, and, or how you use it and apply it? Yes. Um, Metaphysics uh, meant for Aristotle that which is real, we're studying which is real, which then, according to Mircea Iliadi, the real is God and the real is religion. Mm. So I don't see metaphysics or philosophy as being absolutely disparate, isolated from religion. There's, there's something in there that's sure. very strange and related um, and so metaphysics is what is real. Later on, we'll get into uh, how it is mirological part and whole. Okay. Metaphysics is real. Therefore, it is the basis of everything else. Now, um, if that is true, then metaphysics, theoretical metaphysics, is not simply... Uh, a branch of philosophy, but is the foundations of the branches. So I hmm. deep branch in my book, I deep branch metaphysics. It is what is real. What is real? Well, uh, holistic parts, and this gets to be a little abstract, but okay. uh, the world around us is real. However, if you look at it in a sense, the real is underlying what we see, hear, and touch. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I would need several hours to go into that, but metaphysics yeah. is that which is holistic as a context for perceived parts. Okay. And I, 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 I think that your word emergent is important here because we don't see the real. We think about the real, we think and cognitively understand the real, emotively uh, the real, but um, a pen, a pencil, rocks, mm -hmm. matter, manifest reality. They okay. manifest something yeah, basic. Go ahead. Great. So, yeah, this is a, um, I'm glad we're getting into this. And let, let me give you some of my framing, how I backed into these concepts and see how this aligns. So, um, so for me, metaphysics are about first principles of knowing. Okay. So they're sort of, it's sort of like, what are the concepts and categories that create a holistic cosmology worldview? So sort of like your metaphysics then is the, the first pathway into knowledge, basically. So first principles in the sense that affords those kinds of issues. And then what I would say for release, then ontology Ontology becomes sort of my theory about reality. And then epistemology is how I know and justify that ontology. Um, how does that jive with your uh, framing on those concepts? You know, it's very ironic. Um, 
in my book, I have metaphysics um, as, well, is different from what we have today as metaphysics. We talk of uh, positivism to existentialism. I look at that as ontology. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, but I look at metaphysics as something more abstract. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it's elusive. It is elusive. It's almost like the Tao. Yep. Uh, it's very elusive. You can think it, but there you can't say that metaphysics is going to be detected. The real is detected. I don't see you detecting it so much as you're thinking it. You're conceptualizing mm -hmm. it. Okay. And yeah. then comes ontology, I call it ontology, <clears throat> where you have matter, existentialism, phenomenology, and so forth, things we see. Gotcha. Things, yep, that, that aligns. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Things we see are based on that which we don't see. Okay. The perceptual and the actual is based on that which we don't see. Does this sound like scripture? Maybe. <laughs> uh, therefore, is scripture correct? Well, don't doubt it. Um, and so what I did then in metaphysics is say, eventually, one of the derivatives is epistemology and knowledge, but knowledge has to come out of ontology. It has to come out of metaphysics. Okay. So yep. that um, you can't have... Uh, uh, empiricism and rationalism standing alone. The big problem I have seen in the history of philosophy is that we say, here is metaphysics, and then here is ethics, and then, oh, by the way, here is uh, social thought, and by the way, here is epistemology. Uh -huh. That is about as fragmented as you can get. Uh -huh. So what I see is metaphysics once understood is isomorphic to hmm. the other uh, areas. It is isomorphic to the disciplines. So what happened was um, in my freshman or sophomore year, I was very lucky. I bumped into systems engineering, human factors engineering, ergonomics, general system theory, isomorphics, mirology, and I'm thinking, okay. Yeah, mirology, for people listening, mirology is the sort of philosophy and science apart whole relations, generally. Uh, so I just, uh, people may not. Right, mirology is the study of part and whole. Mm -hmm. And you really, you know, I'm, I don't think I've met five philosophers who've ever heard of mirology. <laughs> well, books on mirology have labeled philosophy. So neurology can be mathematics and it can be uh, philosophy. And the books were written by New York University professors in philosophy. So I can't remember two people in philosophy with PhDs. I didn't say neurology and they say, what's that? Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, you gotta be kidding. Mm. Uh, I met philosophers who've never heard of cybernetics. Huh. Fernandez was mentioned in Plato and Aristotle, buddy. Right. Uh, so, um, and by the way, cybernetics is the foundations of the word government. 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 Yeah. You're government. not going to mm -hmm. find you're not going to find a political science department with a course on cybernetics, mm. and you're not going to find a cybernetics course 
that says cybernetics is the basis of the word government. Hmm. So um, I see general system theory and isomorphs and metaphysics, and I'm thinking, okay, therefore there is a unifying way of looking at all of these. And um, so when I looking at this and I'm talking to people and later on as I'm developing my book, I'm putting metaphysics as chapter one <clears throat> uh -huh. and, and the other chapters follow it. Metaphysics, ontology, ethics and so forth. Um, but I also have to put, by the way, Levinas into this because um, uh, right after, well, right after college and in, in, into graduate school, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, if you have the is and the ought, metaphysics is derivative of ethics because the positivist says, I'm a positivist because it's good. Mm. The existentialist says, I'm an existentialist because it is right. They just talked to, they just equated metaphysics and ethics. Hmm. Because if I argue that, if I argue that X is correct, what am I doing? Well, I am saying, like it or not, uh, I am saying that X is ethical. Mm -hmm. So therefore, uh, I, I, I think what has happened here is that we've isolated ethics from metaphysics, from hermeneutics, from epistemology. That's wrong. And this is where I agree with your concept that there's got to be a unifying theory of, of knowledge. And as I, one of the most interesting things that happened to me um, many years ago is I was teaching, um, as I was teaching metaphysics, I get blank stares. Mm. I talk about, mm -hmm. uh, I talk about neurology, then I talk about positivism and existentialism, and my students are looking at me. And I'm thinking, okay, Kazanji, now what do you do? Do you give them all <laughs> Fs? Or do you decide on bringing something down to earth? Mm. So I said, by the way, how many of you understand user-friendly thinking? All the hands go up. Huh. Well, the, there's a user-friendly computer, okay? Now I say you have the technology that is being developed to take account of the human, okay? So far, so good. Now they're beginning to uh, have fewer and fewer blank faces. Huh. Now I go home and I'm happy. However, it occurs to me, you know, there is more than designing technology for the human. There's also designing the human for technology. Huh. Uh, so how so? Well, you're educating bomb squad members to deal with the bomb. Mm. So what you're doing is the bomb is the limit. The bomb is the constraint. You better take the bomb into account. Mm -hmm. Okay, but there's a little bit more. You not only have technology for the people, you have people uh, who take account of technology uh, in the police and the FBI and so forth, in the military. 
But you train, for example, people to be spies in another country. So you better take the other country into account. Mm -hmm. When someone talks to somebody, they better take that other person into account. Teacher must take student into account. Um, if you are dealing uh, uh, with any kind of interpersonal relations, you better take uh, the other person into account. If you're training police to go undercover, they're going to have to take the enemy into account. Yeah. Okay, so you have not only technology taking personal into account, you have a whole mess of interfaces. What does that do? Well, what did I just do? I just redefined metaphysics as the part taking the whole into account, but I've done something else without realizing it. I've taken human factors engineering and ergonomics and expanded it. So I go from the technology person interface, I have the technology technology interface, person to person interface, person technology interface. What do you right. do in medicine? Primo non nocere. In the first mm. place, have bedside matters, do no harm. Physician to surgeon. Right. Um, if yeah, so let me pause you right here because it's a super important point of your book. And I really, I'd never seen this before. I think this is a, uh, you know, this idea of thinking about metaphysics and human factors engineering that had not dawned on me. I actually related to this very deeply, though, as I really thought about it. So I just wanted to say, is this a pretty, this is a pretty novel build, bridge you're building, right? Not too many other philosophers have made linkages between metaphysics and human factors engineering. Is that fair to say? I know of no one who has done that. In fact, I think the closest you've come maybe are people in um, philosophy of technology, but they really don't do that. I don't think, well, you know, today you, you pick up um, an ergonomics textbook. The only thing you're gonna see is the human factor of technology. Well, the existentialist or the phenomenologist in philosophy is going to talk about the existential factor of the material. So there is the cognitive and the emotive, which by the way, you point out in your book, you and I are ahead of the engineers. Mm. So what implications does this have for an engineering school? A lot, because um, this would imply expanding ergonomics from one interface and 100% of ergonomic books are just out of that one interface, you can expand it to 10 interfaces. For example, technology must take account of nature. How so? The bridges in Chicago are uh, a block long or less than a block long because they're taking account of the width of the Chicago River. Mm. The width of the Chicago River is not wide. The width of the Verrazano Narrows is wide. So mm. the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, if you're gonna build that, you better take into account the fact that your bridge is gonna be, what is it, a mile long? I don't know. It is long. So therefore, 
ergonomics would say, uh, design technology also to take account of nature. You don't find that in ergonomics books. Um, you can also uh, design nature to take account of nature. How? You have a garden at home. You have a garden in, in, in big central parks. Well, the garden, you may have a garden there that's set already. Uh, you're not going to change Central Park. Uh -huh. You're not going to change a person's home garden. So when you add flowers or add bushes, you're going to have to take account of what they have there and put the bushes and the flowers that take account of the garden that's already there. So what I do in my book is plant the seeds. I'm, I'm thinking of writing another book on this where uh, ergonomics depends on what I call, uh, well, I, I don't call it human factor or object factor. I have to get something more abstract in the metaphysics and I call it the theory of limits or limit uh, theory, uh -huh. which combines, um, you're never gonna find this anywhere. It combines human factors, cybernetics, game theory, phenomenology, virtue ethics, neurology, functions, and sets. Mm. I mentioned this to a psychology uh, friend of mine who's a former high school classmate, and he said, wow. <laughs> and my initial reaction was, you know what? All of these have something in common. All of these have in common, as I point out in my book, that you have parts in neurology which would take account of the whole or the limit. Mm. So what I did in my book is say, ultimate, uh, there is an ultimate general theory that we cannot see. We don't see parts, we don't see holes, mm -hmm. but we can, conceptualize them. And again, MIT comes in. Um, my ideas would have vast implications for MIT and Caltech and other engineering mm. schools. It would expand them. But interestingly enough, the 1961 bulletin that I still have of MIT, mm. in the classroom, we, th well, in the laboratory, we do, we act. Mm -hmm. But in the classroom, we think about what we are doing. Mm. Guess what? Camus says, the existential philosophers, yep. we do and do and do and do, and then we stop and pause to think about what we've done. Mm. Whitehead says, we have to plan a blueprint, and then we do the blueprint in building a home. Mm. So you have Camus, Whitehead, MIT say justifying thinking. Hmm. When you're thinking, um, you're thinking about something that you don't, you, you, you're, you're thinking, but you don't see the thinking. Uh -huh. It is a process which limits, uh, which limits the parts. And so in my book, in the first chapter, I'm saying uh -huh. there is the holistic part, uh -huh. which you don't see. 
Uh Then if you take the parts out of the hole, uh, as Skinner, I think, probably does the extreme behaviorists do, you have the part alone. I call it the exopart, exonominalism. And that would be positivism. That would be the surgeon who does surgery. He's an expert technician, but is he ethical? Mm. So you have the holistic (laughs) part, the theory of limits. Then you have the unlimited parts, positivism. Then you come down to the whole alone. And the whole alone, um, I was talking to somebody about this and they said, what are you talking about? Hmm. I have examples of that. Hmm. Part alone would mean either you're eating junk food, you're consuming something, or it would be robots, or it would be overeating. Hmm. If you're overeating, all you're doing is literally putting stuff in your mouth. Okay. Now, does that have implications for drugs? Well, we already have that in the pharmacy. Take a medication only if you need it, but if you take medication, be careful of how you take it. Okay. There are certain things that you shouldn't necessarily consume. Mm. Uh, as a matter of fact, you might be allergic to steak. Don't eat steak. Uh, but we all should refrain from poison. We all should refrain from toxicity. Then you come down to limited consumption. What is that? Eat properly. Hmm. Eat properly. Uh, Don't overeat. Also eat good food. Don't eat two candy bars. Eat one of them. Um, I was talking to a doctor of mine and I said, uh, what should I eat? He said, eat anything you want, but be careful of overeating. Don't Hmm. overeat. Uh, When you go to a restaurant, order as big a meal as you want, eat 10% of it and take 90 home. Hmm. Mike, I might have lost the thread here a little bit uh, in terms of you were talking about the whole, the part in and of itself, the whole in and of itself, and then we got on to eating in terms of overeating and taking. uh, I, I then was thinking, I'm not sure I was then following in relationship to overeating eating healthy drugs that you might use. Uh, could you back up and gain, uh, maybe re-state uh, uh, some of that so, so I can make sure that I'm following the thread of logic there? Yeah. If I talk about part and whole and the exopart and the endo whole, okay. people are gonna look at me and they're gonna say, we have no idea what you're talking about. Okay unless they're mirologists. Right. So what I do is I give a concrete example of it. Okay, gotcha. The concrete example would be, if you eat properly, mm-hmm. well, my, my taxonomy is, um, is the holistic part, part alone, and the whole alone. Okay. I, I, won't, get into, I won't get into dualism right now. Uh, The example is then proper eating, which means limited eating, limited money, you get a certain salary. Mm -hmm. If you are greedy, run a scam, 
or you do something, if you counterfeit, you're taking money out of context of appropriateness of limit and you wind up with Enron. Hmm. Enron said, we want money. Well, how much money do you want? As much as I can get. That's going to get you in trouble. Hmm. In eating, you have proper eating. Then you have improper eating, which is either overeating. I I hate the all-you-can-eat places. (laughs) Um, All-you-can-eat? I mean, how much can you eat? And or eating junk food. So junk food and overeating would be part outside the hole. Mm. It would be part outside the hole because all you're doing is consuming. Uh, The healthy eater eats some and pauses. Eats some and pauses. Uh, I see obese people who are eating and drinking and drinking and drinking. They're Mm. drinking Sundays. And I'm thinking, well, you know, you keep doing that and eventually you're not going to be able to eat because you're not going to be, period. Mm. Okay. On the other extreme, what is the extreme uh, part alone? Well, the extreme is whole alone. And in whole alone, I have the opposites of eating poison or overeating. What is the opposite? Starvation. Mm. Okay, so so you're putting part and whole and then explaining with examples their various relations and then you're describing those relations in in different, you know, frames. It's like, okay, this one has constraints. It's a part of a proper feedback loop. This one has no constraints or it takes the limits of constraints possibly and that derails the holistic part whole relation you know okay right. that, that's that's a piece that i needed for clarity and i think right. folks listening now, may need i'm going to give you a little quiz and i bet you're going to get a plus <laughs> okay uh i mentioned eating and starving now you have a person who makes a good salary mm-hmm. they should be satisfied okay now if they take money out of context they're either going to run a scam or they're going to counterfeit. Okay. okay. That's money parts out of context. What would be, in your opinion, the opposite of running a scam or of wanting more and more and more money? What would be the exact opposite, in your opinion? Don't um, be wrong. Uh, altruism, giving? Yes. Yes. Altruism and giving to the extreme, that would be working without money. Mm-hmm. Working without money, saying, I don't want to get paid. Mm. Now, can we have a word world which is purely altruistic and purely um, no salary, people working for nothing? I'm not sure if we can do that. So when you work, you're getting money. Now, suppose someone says, um, I'm going to just volunteer. Well, it, that is possible if they're financially okay. Well, what does that mean? They're financially okay. They don't need the money. Uh, so the opposite of being a crook is doing nothing. Mm-hmm. That is to say doing nothing. 
So they're not working. They're they're well they're they're putting effort, but they're not getting any money. Mm. So if you work without money, uh-huh. that's the same thing as starving. Mm. One thing you said I wanted to come back to because it was I want I, I haven't told you this, but it's a very I, it sparked my interest, and I wanted us to have an opportunity to dialogue about this. Um, so. And this has to do with your intersection between metaphysics and ergonomics or human factors. Okay. And the cool way you delineated the, you know, person, technology, person, person, technology, technology embedded in nature relations in your book and and in some of the discussion you just gave. Um, So I believe that this intersection of our metaphysics of ourselves, of nature and technology is absolutely central um, and maybe even more central now. And let me explain what I mean by this. And, you know, maybe we can riff off of this for a little bit. So, you know, the tree of knowledge, the tree of knowledge then maps uh, the evolution of complexification, starting with the Big Bang and energy information, and then the first dimension of complexification being matter. And then after that, it trails us into life and then into mind, animal, mental dimension, and then into culture, person. Okay, Uh, and I was in 1997 is when I had that flash. I sketched it out. I was stoned one night and sketched it out and my life changed. Um, But here's the thing I wanted to come back to with metaphysics and tech and ergonomics and technology interface. So um, that creates what I find in your work really fascinating. So for me, I asked myself, it's like, what are these cones? You know what that I drew them out and I wasn't really sure exactly If you ask the question, what actually do you mean by these cones of life, mind and culture coming out of matter? The hell is that? Um, And then it over year or whatever, it started to dawn on me that what these what life is in this model is an emergent, complexified, adaptive system. Okay, Uh, and the way that it achieves its structure, functional organization is through the emergence of a novel information processing communication system that actually has parts like genes and holes like cells, and then they communicate. Okay. And then I realized that the same things happen at the animal. So the animal uh, yokes cells together with an information, new information processing unit called a nervous system and neural networks. And then it behaves as a whole and they communicate. Okay. And then humans talk and they yoke their minds together to create these culture person uh, systems. Okay. And so each one of those emerges as a function of a novel information processing communication system. Okay. So then when you see that pattern, that life, mind, and culture emerges, these dimensions of complexification as a function of novel information processing and communication systems, when you have that frame, you the natural thing is well, one, two, three, right? <laughs> is there a four? That's pretty inevitable. And then what I look back on is is right at the cusp of the 20th century, you look back and you say, oh, my God, the 20th century, we laid down our technology evolved to the point now it's an independent information processing system. Okay, Uh, we built artificial intelligence systems. We're interfacing with that in a particular way. We built the Internet to communicate, network that all together. So I knew then or at least the tree of knowledge is a particular foreshadowing that what we should see then is a digital age emerging, okay? Um, and then what that digital age needed for to, is the merger between our us as human beings that emerged out of nature that have built technologies that are now engaged in information interface with ourselves. 
and, uh, and, and the technology and the context. And if we if we get that framing right, the relation, the human factor relation between technology, our history, the context and the future, that then we can build something that will have you know organized potential. If we don't get this right at all, there's all sorts of chaos or hyper-ordered control systems that can ruin the structure. So that's the fifth joint point on the tree of knowledge. And really what it was is sort of, we need a metaphysics that affords us the capacity to interface with our human natures and the technologies that's emerging. So when I saw metaphysics get yoked to human factors engineering, and I saw your general systemic model, I was like, damn, that's really fascinating. I put a new twist on that. Um, and it created a particular kind of alignment. So I just wanted to share that with you, see what that sparks in you, see if you have any reactions to that. Uh, my immediate reaction, and even long-term reaction, is that your, uh, your, your spectrum from matter to culture and, and humanity mm -hmm. is precisely Husserl's and Schutz's in my life world, uh -huh. an integrated, um, integrated material, non-material life world, uh -huh. which is in ontology, it is phenomenology. And here you are conversant with experts in phenomenology. Uh -huh. it is then in abstract neurology, metaphysics, Mm -hmm. It is the whole part thing mm -hmm. with, with part being matter and the whole being humanity. Mm -hmm. Now, here is the, here is an issue. Um, you know, I've talked about the middle point, uh, the, the holistic part yep. and the human factor thing. And I've talked of two extremes, mm -hmm. uh, which are distortions. Yes. If you have, one distortion, the holistic distortion, you have humanity, which is anti-technology, anti-technology. Um, they would even be more anti-technology than some of the Amish, much mm. more anti-technology, mm -hmm. because at least the Amish are saying, which technology should we accept? Mm. At least they're asking a question. On the other hand, the other uh, distortion would be technology and artificial intelligence minus the human factor. Right. And that gets dangerous. Then you're saying, um, we're going to have technology taking over the world. Uh, you know what? You better be careful because the military, the US, the Soviet Union, Russia, China have, in fact, at times, over-computerized missile launches and mm. preparation for war. So what has happened is many people, uh, this is work, this is not classified information, this is written in books, where a, a non-human system, no human intervention, mm -hmm. spots something coming in and says, bingo, the U.S. is attacking us. Yep. Bingo, uh, uh, the Pentagon would say, Russia is attacking us. The human being comes in and says, not necessarily because the, something may be wrong with the computer. Right. If you have absolute independent artificial intelligence, you're in trouble. Yep. Because there is no way that the artificial intelligence 
is going to say anything other than, hey, there's something coming in. Uh, there's a story about when we created dew line mm -hmm. in Alaska, we miscalculated the computer. The computer was picking up the moon. We didn't know that. The mm. computer was saying, uh, artificial intelligence, if you will, mm -hmm. that Russia was sending 500,000 missiles toward us. NORAD said they don't have 500,000 missiles. They have 1,000. Okay, something is wrong. They checked with Palomar. Palomar said, they checked with Palomar and they said, we scramble jets and we don't see anything up there. Who's invading us? Martians? No. Mm. Palomar said, that's the moon. Uh. What happened was we misprogrammed the computer. They were within five minutes um, of calling JFK. Uh -huh. And McGeorge Bundy took the call and they said, this is what we have. Bundy says, well, what's going on? We'll tell the president tomorrow morning. Finally, they concluded that if you rely only on computers, uh, you're committing suicide. Oh. So yes, um, there is the middle point. Holistic, uh, my theory of limits says you have the, well, I, I don't call it just human factor. I call it the limit factor on right. part. Mm. And if you apply that, then you have the constraint factor on the part. Mm -hmm. Don't take the part out of the hole. Mm. And um, MIT Sherry Turkle has a book, uh, Reclaiming Conversation. Mm. We have overdone mobile phones. We've overdone telecommunication. Um, and we're losing the limit factor because we're saying, hey, we have a mobile phone. We have technology. That's sexy. No, not really. What you're doing is distorting conversation and distorting the TOK. You're mm. di distorting the holistic factor. Mm. So my impression is that your spectrum is indeed uh, resonating with my chapter two mm -hmm. on ontology mm -hmm. because I'm saying there is the uh, culturally limited matter and data. Then there are the two distortions, mm. matter without culture, mm -hmm. culture without matter. Mm. So culture without matter would be the caveman. Mm. It would be, um, oh legion of solipsism is what it does. Matter without this, even the AMA would disagree with it because AMA says, hey, do no harm. Uh -huh. Why shouldn't I do harm? Well, I don't know. But human nature says do no harm. And, uh, you know, Boober and Hillel come into this because your spectrum is also taking those and uh, Maslow into account by saying there's the either relationship. Yep. If you take the material body out and just have matter, you have surgery that is not necessary. If you have no surgery, no nothing, you wind up with faith healing. Mm. How uh, effective is that? Mm -hmm. And um, 
So this could have the implications, should we have medicine? Well, you know, we're human beings. I don't know what we're going to do a million years from now. I don't know. <laughs> but today, yes, you have medicine. You better also have psychiatry and psychology, but in an integrated manner. <clears throat> um, my book and your book seem to update Husserl mm. and the life world, and they update... Um, Alfred Schultz, the sociologist, and what they do is they show uh, the problem with what I call exonominalism. You know, I, I see nominalism and, and rationalism as together, mm -hmm. a la Paul Ricoeur. Mm. Uh, Can you say a word or two about nominalism? I'm sure folks know about empiricism and rationalism, but they may not know, you know, have an immediate sort of frame oh, for understanding oh, nominalism. Yes. The nominalists and the empiricists simply say perception is alone. We okay. only gain knowledge through perception. Mm. Well, what the nominalist or what I call the exonominalist, the exo-empiricist says, if perception is the only thing, you just lost a war because in war we have misinformation. <laughs> so this is where we tried to fool successfully Hitler hmm. because we were buying, the OSS was buying maps from Norway and Sweden to make the Nazis think that we were going to invade through Scandinavia. Hmm. If you were merely empirical, and I know people like that, if you're merely empirical, merely nominalist, you're in trouble because you will believe everything you see. Mm. I would hate to see them work for the intelligence agency or the CIA. <laughs> they wouldn't work for the FS, FSB or the former KGB because they're saying, I only see what I see. Okay. On the other extreme would be what I call the exo-rationalists mm. who say it is only innate ideas. Mm -hmm. um, you know what? If you have only innate ideas, uh, good luck. You're going to run into solipsism and you're mm -hmm. going to say there's no world out there. So the phenomenologist, strictly speaking, and your spectrum and my spectrum say that we have to have embodied nominalism, embodied empiricism, where, uh, yes, you have to perceive and sense, but you also have to put this in the context or you're in trouble. Right. Uh, again, in medicine, you have the extremes. One is faith healing. The other extreme would be uh, only emphasis on the ER or mm -hmm. the ICU. Well, if you have only the ER, you're saying, have the patient come in and we'll straighten out their heal their broken bone. Mm -hmm. Okay, what do you do when they come in every week with a broken bone? Don't you get suspicious? <laughs> uh, where do they live? What are they doing? Why is it that they always have a cut on their hand? Are they trying suicide? Mm -hmm. Are they in a gang war? So if you have only sense perception, this is where I disagree with Ryle. Ryle said, if you have only sense perception, 
you're going to be in trouble. Ryle says there is no university. The university is only the way the buildings are organized. Right. Guess what, Gilbert? Uh, the buildings are not just organized. They're organized in a certain way, and they are not disorganized, nor are the buildings or any campus simply linear. You, 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 every campus has buildings in squares, in parallelograms, in little uh, modules. Right. Uh, you don't have a campus anywhere in the world where the buildings are strictly in a line 10 miles long. Mm -hmm. Why? That's not humane. <laughs> That's only linear. And in fact, it's interesting that we have, we have linear programming and we have nonlinear programming. We have chaos theory, which says, you know what? Chaos theory simply is trying to find an organization. You, you, don't, you can't have total chaos because if you have total chaos, you're in trouble. No doubt about that. Uh, yeah. Let me, let me ask you a question in terms of because this is also something I haven't you haven't talked too much about. But um, so the field of philosophy is quite different than the unified philosophy that you laid out. You know the current organization of it. So has so, there been? Yeah, you're right. The way it's currently organized. So has what has the has the field had any reaction to your proposal? Have you had other? Have you gotten in, engaged in any kinds of debates? Is it pretty much just ignored? I mean, what's your what has been your relationship to philosophy as you have had this vision for a unified philosophy? I would guarantee, as I point out in my book, that my book is, pro is unique in philosophy because, first of all, I talk about uh, um, metaphysics and neurology. Uh -huh. I don't think there are... Uh, the, the only people who probably might be able to converse with me are philosophers who do neurological research, okay. such as at New York University. Um, I... I have convinced that unless there are some in philosophy of technology, they're not going to look at my book and say, oh, yes, you're right. Mm. Because, um, well, obviously, for example, I'm expanding ergonomics. Mm -hmm. um, human factors engineers probably would have to think about this. Mm. Philosophers would have to think about this. Um, before they would agree or disagree. And the other thing that I would do in philosophy, um, I can't think of, um, I can't think of too many philosophers who would read the book without my explaining it for them to say, oh yes, uh, okay. okay. Uh, I, I, I kind of see myself um, Let's say in physics, Einstein's theory came about and people said, what are you talking about? Uh -huh. uh, time and space are not relative. Uh -huh. Then you have quantum physics. People are saying, um, what is Heisenberg talking about? Quantum physics? Uh -huh. Today it's routine. Um, as a matter of fact, in law, from what I understand, um, I think when Harvard Law School came out with case studies, lawyers said, no, this can't be true. You don't study law by cases. Mm. Uh, so um, it would take people, I, I would have to explain things 
in terms of my book, I, I do have a PowerPoint here on breaking down the um, various branches of philosophy and engineering to put them in, in, in very simple terms. Uh -huh. And um, uh, I think that I am doing in philosophy, it seems to me what you're doing in psychology and it's possible, you know, you're looking at all of these various strands and you're, you're asking the psychologist, what are you doing? Uh -huh. And my question to philosophers is, what are you guys doing? Uh -huh. uh, is, is metaphysics really positivism to existentialism or is there something deeper? And so what I've, what I've done in my book is I've said, Philosophy should be elevated to an ongoing liberal arts education. Mm. Um, I have a feeling that philosophers will wonder about that and non-philosophers are gonna say, hey, philosophy is nothing. You're elevating mm. philosophy? <laughs> but I, I've, I've um, shown in various aspects how philosophy would unify the disciplines and provide the basis of this. And uh, my support is Mary Mitchley and, and uh, Whitehead because mm -hmm. they, they talk about this uh, in a non-conventional way. Um, I, um, I think there may be, I don't know, maybe 50 or maybe 100 people somewhere in the world in philosophy who would understand what I'm saying. Okay. And um, mm -hmm. the one person who seems to understand what I'm saying is you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because as soon as you talk about what you're doing, and I'm thinking, he's doing what I'm doing. Yep. Um, except that he's more conversant in philosophy than I am in psychology. <laughs> well, I really, I really, I think that's a, um, I appreciate that summary. I know I can relate. Uh, to being like, hey, I see something from a different angle, a more unified angle than other people, but I put stuff together in ways that other people find much, uh, not always easy to follow. Uh, I appreciate the way, you know, myriology, philosophy, your broad view, the human factors or ergonomics, it's fascinating. Um, yeah. In terms of your sort of vision for the future, we've been going about an hour now, so I like to ask people near the end, kind of like, hey, what's your vision for the future um, and your hopes and for kind of uh, what your work is, any additional projects or what you hope uh, sort of education unfolds in a particular direction? What are some, can you share with us some of thoughts that you have in, yep. in those uh, domains? I'm, I'm sending emails to engineering schools uh, particularly those in ergonomics to show how I'm expanding ergonomics and showing the, um, uh, trying to explain to them what my theory of limits is uh, and how engineering can be the basis of liberal arts, engineering and philosophy relating to liberal arts. Oh. And um, it's my hope that um, they would see that uh, ergonomics is not limited to the technology person interface. Uh -huh. That would be like one tenth of what ergonomics is. And I then relate this back to saying, hey, you were wrong, Kazanjian, in high school, <laughs> uh, being against liberal arts. Right. 
And now I see where I'm going, and I, I see an interdisciplinary um, factor that I'm trying to, uh, well, I'm emailing um, 40, 50 different engineering schools. Hmm. I'm saying, uh, okay, professor, you are doing something in ergonomics, mm -hmm. but here is my view. Um, I've done one book, but I'm now thinking of a, another book on actually outlining 10 or 15 new interfaces, mm. which would then, uh, and I'm thinking of bringing your ideas into this too, uh, how this would relate, not to a specific profession, uh -huh. but foundations of all professions. Mm. Because what we're doing here is showing an outline, uh, White that has influenced me here, an mm -hmm. outline, when, when a student comes into the first year, when you're a graduate student, when you have a capstone, when you're in graduate school, um, is a discipline art or science? Mm -hmm. Is it technology or art science? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Is the state communitarian or contract? Mm -hmm. It can't be extreme. It's either it. It can't be either or. It's got to be both and. Right. Um, when you talk about religion, uh, what are the various types of religion, and what is pantheism, theism, atheism? Uh, when we talk about um, truth, we have uh, truth theories, inflation, deflation. Um, we have truth theories of correspondence and contract. What do those really mean? Well, inflation means we need theories of truth. Mm -hmm. In a concrete sense, however, that can force us to think about bureaucracy. Mm. In a bureaucracy, you need something you, you do something, but you go to another bureau, then another bureau, then another bureau, that becomes bureaucratic. It becomes a red tape. Mm -hmm. So uh, a, a truth theory by itself becomes red tape, but deflation means you only trust people. Now, I would interface it. You have inflation, deflation. That is to say, inflation within a deflationary context. Mm. Uh, when I see somebody out there, oh, by the way, um, when I was in college, we only had theories of truth. Mm. Lately, philosophers have talked about deflation because they found out you have to have trust. There is uh. a point where you can't justify. Mm -hmm. It is justified. Mm. I mean, uh, if I have to question everything you say, I'm never going to get anywhere. Right. There is a point at which I have to trust you. Um, if I tell you that I'm going to email you tomorrow, how much proof do I need uh, <laughs> that I'm going to email you tomorrow? If you tell me that tomorrow you're going to do X, right. I have to trust that you're going to do X. <laughs> so in philosophy, I think we have not, We've removed ourselves from reality, right. and we've said, um, oh, there's correspondence theory and truth theory. 
uh, there's correspondence and 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 um, um, correspondence, Co coherence, foundational, you know, yeah, the, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. And my question is, no relationship. Um, and if you say inflation, deflation, no relationship. Right. So my hope is eventually to talk to people. Um, I'd love for there to be a develop a think tank along these lines uh -huh. uh, in which we can, quote, make more concrete and relevant philosophy by bringing together engineers, philosophers, psychologists, uh, sociologists, economists, and so forth, to talk, to find common ground. I'm very encouraged by um, books by uh, economists who talk about the social context, the human context of economics. Mm -hmm. And economics is not merely money and commerce. Yep. There's, there's, there's a human dimension to this. Um, Richard Thaler of the University of Chicago wrote a book that I like, Nudge, okay? Sure. How to market things for people. Uh, he may not know it, but he just did ergonomics. Yep. And um, he may not know it, and um, other people, other economists may not know it, but if you talk about the sociology of economics, you're bringing these two together. It would be great to have a dialogue with them. Uh, in political theory, you have the state and you have the individual. Well, today we seem to have two things. You either have Rawls or you have Nozick. Mm. Uh, I was very disappointed in grad school. I told a professor, I said, I have developed a way. I, I showed him the paper that I use cybernetics, human factors, and Paul Ricoeur to integrate Rawls and Nozick. Mm. And he said, you can't do this. Why can't we do this? Well, because if these two giants are polarized, who are we to depolarize them? Yeah. Mm. So, yep. so what are we gonna do? <laughs> well, we have to choose either or. Right. Why? Kant, Kant didn't do either right. or. Well, it looks like we ought to make it turn to Hegel, maybe, and and, and create some sort of synthesis. I really, yeah. I, I think that that uh, vision that you have of the possibility of um, sort of clarifying the interrelations between the disciplinary uh, disciplines, recognizing the interface between domains. Um, right. bringing right. attention to metaphysics as a framing for that, and then bringing a table together uh, of many different perspectives that would afford uh, a part whole integrated systemic right. synthesis um, is, uh, is something that I find to be very uh, hopeful at one level. Uh, I think it's going to be difficult, but I do believe that we're in the process of, of potentially creating some spaces where seeds can be planted and that kind of garden might be able to grow. So, uh, one, Yeah, one very encouraging thing was I thought it was very funny. Um, many, many years ago, I read that MIT had a seminar bringing in artists, scientists, engineers, and so forth, and humanists together. Right. And they found out that their differences were almost semantic. Mm, often, they're, totally. Yeah, we're almost semantic. They were talking the same language. Yeah, yeah. 
So, well, maybe uh, movements in unified philosophy and unified psychology uh, yep. will afford us an opportunity to coordinate some of those efforts and bring collective intelligences together uh, and afford us some ways that we might navigate this fifth joint point, this intersection between metaphysics and technology and nature and each other yeah. in a way that, uh, you know, orients us toward the potential good ethical ways of being. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I very much appreciate you coming and sharing this vision. Thank you. Um, Thank you and uh, you and obviously you and I will be in contact, uh, but, but, but appreciate that. A any final thoughts or words for the listeners? Well, I'm uh, hoping to uh, get a publisher to do uh, uh, a kind of a sequel to my book. I'm going to call it the theory of limits, uh, integrating 10 or 15 different things that seem to be separate. And um, uh, every time you and I exchange emails, I learn something. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I, I'm thinking, hey, I like the fact, I like talking to Greg because he knows as much philosophy as I do. I got to learn psychology from him. <laughs> <laughs> All righty, Fred. Well, uh, I appreciate the. It's mutually uh, rewarding. And uh, I look forward to future conversations. Thanks so much for coming on the program. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care.